0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, last book of the Bible. Some folks might be surprised to find out the last book isn't actually concordance, okay? Um, I told one fellow, I said, I believe the Bible's true all the way from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the concordance, movie. <laughs> but uh, you know what I meant. Bible's God's Word. It's true. We're going to be looking at a very interesting book. There's a lot going on in this book and um, hope to be working through it in the days ahead or the weeks ahead. So if you can join us, that would be great. You can also catch this online. We hopefully will be able to record all these. They'll be on our YouTube channel. And we're going to work through this book. There's a lot of different interpretations. It's like, well, you know, it's rather presumptuous of your pastor, me, to think that he's gonna preach through Revelation as if he knows what it actually means. Well, I do know what it means. I heard the story and I've shared it with some of you in the past about the old fellow that was sitting on the sidewalk and he had a Bible open, and some young Bible college students walked by and they said, Hey, old well, fellow, you reading the Bible? I goes, Yeah. And they said, Well, what are you reading? And he looked and he said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And they said really you Now these were bible college students so they they had all the charts they had they knew it all pretty much at least they thought so they said to him they said you're reading revelation he goes yeah Do go, you understand it he goes, yeah i do and they said really they were kind of laughing among themselves they said so so what do you think it means and he stopped and he looked up and he told him he said it means we're going to win and so he wondered what the approach is going to be on the book of revelation That's the approach. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, I taught through this book years ago in a Bible study up in Shingletown with Ed Gover and a number of other people. We were really, really blessed as we read it. And as we read it, uh, as we went through it and studied it, there's a whole lot of things that do demand some interpretation. But primarily what we looked at was Let's look at this as what it tells us it is. It's a revelation of <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Let's see just exactly what it is we can learn about Jesus as we go through this book. And, you know, Ed was there. You can, if you don't believe me, you can talk to Ed. It just opened like a beautiful flower with fruit and fragrance. It was great, okay? The Lord really blessed it. That was one of the most blessed Bible studies I think I've ever been involved in. Uh, and it was just neat. We went through it. So that's... We're not going to try to reduplicate that, but we are going to try to go through the book again and trust God because he gave us that in that study. So I'm hoping that he'll bless us as we go through this. So we're going to be looking at this piecemeal. Now, there are some things we have to cover ahead of time so we understand. At least you you can know where I'm coming from on this. There are different views of Revelation, and each view usually is militant in the, the demand that it's the only one that is true and that anyone that doesn't hold to this view obviously is blind. I read one commentary and I read up to about the point I'm going to tell you where the guy was setting forth his theory that everything happens before 70 AD. It's all about the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't believe that by the way, but he was written about 96 AD. That seems to be the internal testimony of the book and also the historical testimony. Everybody (laughs) was around at that time. All the church fathers all say in unison, John wrote it, uh, about 96 AD. Okay. Um, and so, whether the testimony of history can be relied upon or not, it's pretty clear once we get into the book that this was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. But this book was saying, no, it's all about the destruction of Jerusalem. It parallels the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 21. And then the guy said, anyone that doesn't see this is obviously blind. And I was like, thank you. That's all I need to hear. Okay. Because This guy was so locked into his view. And the problem with that, when you talk to people, by the way, in in the Reformed churches, you're going to find some major view. They market it as post millennialism. Okay, that's the whole view of that Christ comes at the end of the millennial period. But the the pre trip or the pre uh, destruction of Jerusalem group says that uh, everything's about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then you ask them, what about the last chapter when it talks about Jesus coming again? and the new heavens, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. They go, oh, well, yeah, that's at the end of history. So, you know, my my statement to them was, so the book does go all the way to the end of history. They go, yeah, yeah, chapter, you know, 22 does. Like, well, why couldn't chapter 21, or 20, or 19, or 18, or seventy be beyond 70 A.D.? And usually, I just get some cold stares, and then they want to argue about things. So... The point is is that we are going to take a historical approach to the book. I do believe it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem and that that is not what it's talking about in this book. I believe it's talking about the revelation it was given so the church would have a prophetic word from God from the time that John received this revelation, letting us know what's going to unfold in history until Christ actually returns on the last day. And I think that's the healthy approach if you read the book without a whole lot of people screaming in your ear about this system of interpretation or some other I think that's pretty well the way it unfolds. So we're going to have that approach. But primarily to avoid a lot of the battles and combat, we're going to focus on Christ. Okay? And by the way, the problem with that, that view I mentioned about 70 AD, that's called partial preterist, okay, because some preterists will even say, oh, well, the second coming took ha- took place in 70 A.D. Like what? No, the Bible describes it. We're going to look at that here in a moment. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you do need to know where I'm coming from so you can judge all things according to Scripture, but uh, I'll do my best so you can pray for me. We're going to look at the opening verses today, verses 1 through 3, uh, and then next week we'll progress with god's blessing or with hopefully we'll be asking for his blessing so in revelation chapter one we read the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant john who bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ to all things that he saw Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we begin looking at this most important book, or very important book of your word, Lord, uh, we pray that you would open our understanding and give us wisdom. You've told us in your word that if any lack wisdom, let them ask of God. So, Father, we ask you this day for wisdom, To understand this book and to know your will as revealed in it so bless us we pray we pray that by your Holy Spirit we would hear it receive it understand it and believe it and act accordingly and Lord we know that only comes about by your Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds but we pray you would do that for us we ask you to do that father in your mercy Lord we can do nothing apart from your son Jesus Christ including understanding your word And so in this difficult book, we pray you'd bless us and give us that understanding. For we ask all these things in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at... Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So it starts off, and it tells us what it is. It's a revelation. The word revelation, sometimes you'll see a a Bible, sometimes it references, they refer to it as the apocalypse. We use that word a lot. We say that something is apocalyptic. Well, that's actually a Greek word. Apocalypsis is the word, and it means just that, a revealing, a revelation. It's something, it's not hidden. You know, we have the apocrypha. Those are the books in between the Old and New Testaments that are printed in some Bibles that are considered by some to be, as they call it, deuterocanonical, generally accepted in the church that they're not really uh, inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit in their nature uh, of authority. And so those are apocrypha, the opposite, and that means hidden, actually. Those were books that were probably better off just blocking them away, but uh, they're read, they're edifying in 1st, 2nd Maccabees, you have some history there, you have other books that are wisdom, but it's uninspired writings. It's kind of on the level of Pilgrim's Progress, there's things like that that we would enjoy. Say, well, they're profitable to read, but don't think it's scripture or you'll misuse them. That's the Apocrypha. Well, this is the Apocalypse, okay, and Apocalypse means to lay bare, to make something wide open, okay, and that's what this is. This is the revelation and note it's of Jesus Christ. Now, the word of in English means it's either from or about or um, uh, concerning. So the revelation of Jesus Christ And in the Greek, by the way, the Greek language is what's called a genitive. And it can be a, also an oblative. The word oblative means from. If you've had Latin grammar, the Greek uh, oblative is similar. The, the oblatives means it's from. It's from Jesus Christ. And it is that. But also it's what we call a genitive of reference. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. It's his. He owns it. Shows possession. It's been given to him, as it says right there, which God gave to him. Uh, So this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we want to understand this book, the first thing we have to recognize is this book's going to tell us about Jesus. All right? And it's not just for the merely curious, because note what it says. God gave it to him. If you remember during uh, our Lord's earthly uh, time here he said, in reference to his coming, he said, you know, no man knows, nor the angels, nor the sun. It's like, oh, he didn't know during his time here on earth when he, the exact time and date. It seems that his humanity, his deity gave him the knowledge he needed, but he didn't have that particular knowledge. Well, this book sets the, the record straight on that. He received it then and he knows now exactly what's happening because he's in control of history. All always was as to his deity. As to his humanity as our Savior, that, who is both God and man in one person, he now knows all those things, okay? And that's what this is. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see, we're going to see in the chapters ahead that he receives the book of destiny, you might say, from the hand of the Father. And he's able to open the seals of it. That is, history unfolds because Christ is given that authority to open history. We'll look at that in the future. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. But note, the purpose was to show his servants. Now, the Greek word servants there is douloi. And doulos is the singular, plural or date plural, douloi. Uh, he gave to show to his servants. Doulos means slaves. Okay, that's a, you know, a slave is somebody that's been bought. So John's not talking about we have this slavish relationship with God. We do have the fear of God in us but we're, we're the Lord's slave. John refers to himself, you notice. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, same word, doulos, slave, John. So as one commentator pointed out, this book is not just for the merely curious, this is for the servants of God. And that's why so many men stumble at it because if you don't approach it as one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansed by it, redeemed, it's really a confusing book. And you see some of the cults take it and just, you know, try to do everything they can with it and twist it and and deny a lot of different things. But um, in this, we see this book was given by God, obviously the Father, to Jesus Christ to show to his slaves, his servants, things which must shortly take place. Some go, ah, see, it's got to all happen. No, that's not what that means. It means they are going to start happening soon. All right. You know, if someone was to, see, if we went back in time, let's say we're in 1940, and if I was to say there's going to be a world war and it's going to happen soon, so we go, oh, it's going to all happen like at one moment, huh? No, 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 it's going to begin and then it's going to unfold. That's really what is being said here when it says, "For the time is at hand." The idea is it's going to start, and it did start at this time. And then it unfolds, just like the scroll of destiny was unrolled and opened as the seals were broken, as Christ uh, unfolds time. So here we see first it starts off. So we know who it's to. We know what it's about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to his servants, his slaves or bond servants, if you will. Uh, American ears, we prefer that word because slavery, because of our national history, has a really bad taste about it. But. Humble yourself. If you're redeemed by Christ, He bought you with His blood. You're His slave. He owns you. Okay, uh, and that's who this book is given to. There's nothing wrong with being a slave of Jesus Christ because that's the way you you're free. Okay, the most freest people in the world are those that are complete slaves to Jesus and the Word of God. But anyway, that's who it's given to. And it says, and He sent and signified it by His angel. An angel. The word angel, angelos in Greek, it can mean messenger. Okay, it's very simple. It's not you know it doesn't always mean a heavenly being. Probably most of the time it does, but we're going to see in this book as the seven letters are addressed to the angels of the churches as John was on the Isle of Patmos. It could very well simply be understood that it was the messengers of the seven churches. That is used in Scripture that way many times. We'll look at that when we get to it. But here it's, it's sent by and signified by his angel to his servant John. Okay, so why is this opening verse so important? Well, first of all, it's the opening verse, okay? It's going to tell us a whole lot of things. It has. There's a a word here. If you note that word signified, the word signified is a key to understanding this book. The word signified comes from the Greek word semeo, and it means to show by symbols, to show by signs. So we have some of our brethren who, are what we call dispensationalists, and they've got their pre-trib rapture stuff and all that stuff going on. They say, well, we take the book literally. And I'm responding to that most of the time. If you take the book literally, then you have to take it symbolically. So, no, 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 we don't use a symbolic interpretation. We take it literally. It tells you it's a symbolic book. Literal means according to the letter. If you're going to accept and study the book of Revelation, literally, you have to acknowledge verse 1 that tells you it's going to use a lot of symbolism. We've talked about this before in times past when we've quoted from verses in Revelation. Jesus does not actually have a sword coming out of his mouth. All right. There's not going to be a great red dragon appear in the sky. Usually when I've shared this with you, I think before, usually when I've talked with my dispensationalist friends, and they are brethren in Christ. You just don't agree with them on what's called eschatology, the doctrine of last things. When they say they take it literally, I've asked them, I think I referred to this a couple weeks ago. So you actually believe there's going to be a great red dragon appear in the sky and with its tail, it's going to sweep one third of all the stars out of the heavens they go well. No, no, no. It's that's a, that's a symbol. Well, thank you. Very good. Okay, let's go on. Okay, uh, the locusts that come out of the bottomless pit. John says they look all, they look like men riding on horses wearing turbans. So you really think there's going to be locusts that'll be riding on horses and wearing turbans? Well, no. That's it's it's, a, it's a what it's a symbol. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're starting to make some progress. The book is symbolic. Now symbolism in the Bible. You have the symbol, and then you have the reality behind it. We see this in the Lord's Supper. We have bread and we have wine, all right? Those are symbols. There's a reality behind that. It points to the historical reality of the actual physical body of Jesus being broken on the cross for us and his blood being poured out and shed. We don't confound the symbol with the thing signified. There are some churches that do that. And they'll say the, the bread is really the physical body of Jesus and the cup of wine by the priest. You know, his, his words of the, you know, hocus corpus meum or hocus sanguis meum. It's now actually the real body and blood of Jesus. And it's like, no, it, those are symbols. The symbol corresponds to the reality behind it, but it's not the thing itself. To say it is completely overthrows the nature of a sacrament because it's a symbol given to us to point us to Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's not an ongoing sacrifice. It's done. And in the symbols of Revelation, there are realities behind him when it says Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, clearly, the Bible is, refers to the Scripture as the sword of the Spirit, and it's sharper than a two—you know, the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword— So it's pretty clear. It's talking about the word of God coming forth from the mouth of Christ. So you have the symbol, and then you have the reality that it represents. And they're very close. Because when Christ speaks, it is like a sword. It wounds, it kills, it divides. And sometimes it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts the cancerous part away from the healthy part. So it's not a bad thing, but it's sharp. And that's the whole idea of the symbol. So this is really important. You'll find that those who claim to hold to literal interpretation usually generally completely ignore that word, right? Uh, but that's the key. He sent and signified that as he showed by symbols or signs by his angel or his messenger to his servant John or his slave John. So this book is given to those who are the servants of God who are serious in their walk and relationship with the Lord. They're slaves of Jesus Christ. And that's why it was given. So if you belong to Jesus, you say, I've been bought by the blood. You know, I know I'm still struggling sometimes, but I know I'm saved because of Jesus. I'm trusting in him. And that's not something I did. That's by God's grace. This book is for you. That's who it's to. And it doesn't say to only first century Christians, there's an application that goes beyond that time, and that's what we'll be considering. But John describes himself as the servant of Christ, and he he names himself. You know, John doesn't name himself in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. He doesn't name himself, but this book is of such a nature. It's prophetic, and if you go back in the Old Testament, you find the prophets name themselves so that you know who it is that gave that prophecy, because that puts a stamp of responsibility on them and of authenticity. It's not, well, this is an anonymous prophecy that, you know, well, why is that? Because the Old Testament was, if it doesn't come true, the person that gave it in the Old Testament times was to be put to death as a false prophet. But in this case, John identifies himself so that the early church in receiving this, would know this came from Jesus' servant, John. Some modern scholars try to, oh, it might have been a different John. It's like They don't believe Daniel wrote Daniel or that Isaiah wrote the second part of Isaiah. And, You know, they're good at denying anything that's in the Bible. But pretty clear, this is God's servant, John, John the Apostle, who bore witness to the word of God. The word there is logos. John's gospel begins with, in the beginning was the logos, or the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John's letting us know this is the same guy that wrote the gospel. That's who John is here. He wrote this in his old age, probably after everything else. It's the last book of the Bible, and it says at the end not to add anything or take away from this book, but also it's generally understood being the close of the canon. Don't add anything to anything else. Uh, You know, any other books were to be written after until Christ returns. So he wrote this, he bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he bore witness, that is John preached the gospel and he testified what Jesus had testified. The testimony means you bear witness to the truth. And he told them about Jesus. And because of that, he was on the Isle of Patmos, as he uh, says in a uh, a few verses down. But here, that's in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the Isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So because John wouldn't shut up, they exiled him, and he was put on the Isle of Patmos. There were mines there, uh, I believe coal mines, at least from what I've been able to read. And so he was put in to work at the mines, and he was pretty old, so uh, possibly in his 90s by that time. So he wasn't made to work too hard, but then later he was allowed to go back to Ephesus. As far as history tells us, So the Domitian persecution that took place began about 81 AD and lasted for a number of years. There were 10 imperial persecutions. The first one was under Nero. The second one was under Domitian. It goes through all the way down to the Diocletian, the 10th one, around 303. And then within 15 or 20 years after that, you had Constantine come to the throne, who was a professed Christian. And the persecutions finally came to an end. But they were intense and they were fierce. So John was in exile because of that. He bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Now, some have said referring to what John saw. I think that's probably the best way to understand it. But some say, well, this could be a reference to what Jesus saw that he told John. And it's like, possibly. But John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So see, it could be referring to either John or Christ's testimony. fact of the matter is, It's true. That's what he's trying to tell you. And so he gives this revelation. This is the introduction. And attached to this, writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is able to pronounce a blessing. And note what he says. This is good and encouraging. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now the word read there is in the Greek. It's anagonosko. Okay, gnosko means to know something. Anna is the word up. Somehow, when you put them the two together, it means to read out loud, and that's exactly what this that means. And it's clear from the context. There's one reading. This would be an example in the early church when copies of scripture were hard to find. Actually, up until the uh, 16th century, copies of the scripture were hard to find. In some places of the world today very difficult to find scriptures because there's there's persecution going on and oh a no, bible can sometimes be a death sentence in some countries like north korea and elsewhere but here he pronounces a blessing on the one who reads that is reads out and those who hear the words of this prophecy so there's a blessing pronounced to those that are listening and those who are hearing excuse me those who are reading And but it's not just reading alone, it's to those who keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So, the book of Revelation is going to show us what's going on. Now, if you you have to go back, I think, to the first century to appreciate this, the Roman persecutions, some of them were local, the, the neuronic persecution when Paul the Apostle and Uh, Peter were martyred, again, if we can trust history's record. They were both uh, murdered, put to death in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down from what we're told. And Paul was beheaded uh, by Nero. But it was more of a local persecution. It sent some ripples out. But this next one, the Domitian, that was throughout the empire. And it keeps going and going and going. And each one of these was an attempt to exterminate Christianity. And so it keeps going and going, the ten persecutions... Uh, you have you, know, you have Nero, Domitian, Trajan. Marcus Aurelius, the great philosopher that everybody praises today, he persecuted the church. It was not as severe as some of the others. And he issued, actually, it was an order issued that, don't go look for the Christians, but if anybody you know, comes forward and is identified or identifies him or herself as one, they're to be punished, generally with death. They also later came up with the idea that you had to offer incense to the image of the emperor to show your loyalty to the uh empire and then you all you had to say was caesar is lord then you could go throw some incense on an image in front of an image say caesar is lord that shows you're loyal to the empire you get to go home christians wouldn't do that you're not going to burn incense to an image and jesus is lord you know you can say that real easy today you can say jesus is lord in the roman empire if you said that out loud it'd get you killed during these persecution times. So you have Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and then finally Diocletian. That was the last one, it was the most severe. Made an attempt to destroy every manuscript that they could find. They were figured we're gonna get rid of all the writings that, that promote Christianity and anyone found with any New Testament writings or Old Testament would be put to death. It was a death sentence anyone that professed faith in Christ, it would also be a death sentence. We read about this in history. If you're living under that time, you're seeing your brothers and sisters murdered by the government. You know, it'd be like, well, look around the group here today. I mean, if you want to turn around, you can look or look forward. You see this group. What if we knew that within the context of this year, half this congregation was going to be butchered by the government? What on earth would we do? Where would we go? Where would we flee? You know, our government's really powerful. They have ways of finding us. It wasn't that much different in the Roman Empire. We saw under the COVID thing how quickly people are, are willing to rat out their neighbors. Okay. We saw what a bunch of neo Nazis we are, man. What a bunch of informers or whatever you want to call it. It's like, you know, you know, he didn't get vaccinated or, or he did. You know, it was just like, what's going on here, man? It was us and them mentality you know our national unity was just shattered. Well, what we saw is, you know, things were really rough. there were some rough things. you can imagine if something now that's just a mild thing, okay? within context, okay? but if you have a government like in China or North Korea where they're actively pursuing your death if you're a Christian, it's pretty frightening. keep in mind before the book of revelation was written, These Christians, they knew the gospel. They knew about Jesus. They knew from Paul's writings and Peter's writings they were going to suffer persecution. But they were seeing brothers and sisters, put to death. And then along comes this scroll, probably as it was first written. Might have been in book form. It's called a codex, meaning a, a book form. But when they received, this is from John. He was in exile at the Isle of Patmos, and it's gone out to the seven churches, and from there it went out to other churches. And as they began to read it, a lot of symbolism. I don't think they were any less confused than we can get sometimes. You know, I don't think the early church read this and went, well, we understand everything in this book. I don't think that was the case. I think they scratched their heads at a few of the things and wondered what on earth could this mean. But like the old fellow sitting on the sidewalk, <clears throat> these Christians who were hammered, battered, and being decimated saw, hey, you know what? We're going to win. We're going to win there are there's going to be evil in the world there's dragons and monsters coming out of the sea there's a woman dressed in scarlet drunk on with the blood of the saints but that's all dealt with it's all dealt with so what do we learn from revelation well first thing i do want you to notice before we proceed is blessed are those he who reads those who hear and those who keep the things which are written in it. so this isn't just a book to listen to it's a book to obey all right there are things to be kept to held Treasure—that's what that word a tereo that means keep, it means to keep, observe, obey, pay attention. So, what do we learn what, right now? What can we take away from this? We kind of had a general knowledge, I think, of the book. Well, first of all, this book's going to show us that God is in absolute control of history. Keep in mind, if you're a first-century Christian and, and you're getting slaughtered, your family's been killed, some of them—they're hunting you down. But you have to, to—you go to a secret assembly. You're able to hear somebody reading. I'll see. You're, wow. God's in control of history. Ephesians one told us, you know, God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. That's Ephesians 1.11. There are no contingent prophecies in this book. There's nothing like, well, if you do this, then this will happen. None of that. This book's telling you this is what is going to happen. The wicked are going to be destroyed. If you go to the Revelation 19.20, the beast and the false prophet, as though they are understood, whatever they were you're from a first century standpoint, you know, these are enemies of the gospel. They're cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 2010, the devil is cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 2014, death and hell or Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 2015, whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And the Israelites, they would have understood that to be those who were in opposition to the gospel, those who were the enemies of the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul had already described the second coming of Jesus. In uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there with me, I eventually will be able to find it in my Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church, and he says, beginning at verse 6, he said, "...since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you," was writing to the church in Thessalonica, that's in Macedonia, up north of Greece, "...and to give you who are troubled rest with us." So these people were being persecuted and troubled. Imperial persecutions hadn't really fully started yet at this time, But there was opposition to Christianity. There were lies being spread. They were uh, saying that Christians drank blood in their assemblies. That's one of the lies that was told. Um, You know, they would see people when they gathered, they'd greet one another with a holy kiss. And they said they loved one another. And they go, oh, okay, obviously these are immoral people. They're in there drinking blood, et cetera. So a lot of the people in the Greco-Roman world, when they first heard these rumors, they were like, who are these people? These are horrible men. They're not even faithful to the government. They're not faithful to the empire. And so Christians began to be persecuted because the devil is a liar. He's a slanderer, he still does the same thing. Paul says, they're gonna, those who um, trouble you are going to receive tribulation, that is trouble, and you will receive rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Note the description. With his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey God the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So he says, Jesus is coming again. It's not gonna go well for the wicked, those who have turned their backs on Christ, those who have persecuted his church. So if you're a first century Christian and you're reading this, it's like, well, praise God. Okay, it says it's going to be rough. There is a fight to be fought, and some of us are going to die, but that doesn't mean we've lost because there's a resurrection. So that's the second thing. So first we see that God's, God's absolutely in control, should say thirdly, And secondly, God's plan and purpose cannot be overthrown. That's what this book says. Neither by wicked men, nor tyrants, whether secular or religious, or demonic powers, or Satan himself. They will be defeated. I just went through a list of all those being cast into the lake of fire. God is going to win. The wicked will be punished if they are unrepentant. There is, and then thirdly, there is and will be a war to fight. That's what he's telling them. This is not, okay, we've got a victory, so what do we do? Nothing? No, that's not the case. There will be battles, and there will be casualties. There will be martyrs, but they will not ultimately be defeated, nor silenced in their cries to God for justice and victory. We're going to see that very plainly in these chapters that we're going to be getting into the next few weeks. They will rise again in glory and praise, having conquered by their testimony and the, the uh, their testimonies and the, they conquered the enemy is what I'm trying to say, by their testimonies and death. In Revelation chapter 12, we'll jump ahead a little bit because it pertains to what we're talking about. We see this picture set forth. In Revelation chapter 12 at verse 7, we read, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole earth. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, Note that the accuser of our brethren who accused him before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. This is a victorious group here. And by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's the ones that follow Christ. And so if you're reading this in the first century or today even, and you go, wow, that's so great. Well, let's read on, okay? Because there's still a fight to be fought. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in him. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Then it goes on and talks about persecution in the, in the early church. But it's persecution from a defeated enemy. He's already been defeated in heaven. He's been cast out of heaven. The accuser of our brethren has been cast down because Christ is our intercessor. So they overcame by the word of their testimony. I know what it says in verse 11. And they did not love their lives to the death. In chapter 17, the follow-up of that, when pictures Christ coming in glory, or actually some say then the the word going forth, it it begins uh, referring to the 10 horns. And this, again, we'll have to get into this at the time. But the 10 horns which you saw, this is Revelation 17, beginning at verse 12. Uh, But the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. About some future things going to happen. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So there's going to rise as great enemy of the church in time. <coughs> in verse 14, though, it says, These will make war with the Lamb. So this great enemy is going to make war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. There's the victory. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And the note, And beloved, this is you. And those who are with him are called and chosen, it means elect, by the way, that's a Greek word there, called and chosen and faithful. Note that they're called of God, they're elect, and they're faithful. That is, their hearts have been changed. And so that's the army that's with Christ. So as Tertullian said, or as he's been paraphrased as saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we have the persecutions, we have this beast that rises up. Now, today, as we consider things, we find that we live in perilous times, okay? Uh, we live in some pretty scary times. 1 Timothy 3 1 refers to the last days, uh, saying that the last days shall be perilous times. It talks about false gospels and false professors. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he again refers to in the last days will be scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. From the beginning of the creation and then he points out and says they're willingly they're willingly ignorant that the earth was destroyed by a flood once and the heavens that and the earth that now uh, exists are reserved for fire to the day of uh perdition of ungodly men so the the last days is what we're living in in acts chapter 2 verse 17 It refers to the at Pentecost as in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So the last days began in the first century. That's because this is the last, if you want to use the word dispensation, it's the last dispensation before eternity. We're living in the last times. What's the point? The point being that the message of the book of Revelation is pertinent and applicable to us today and needed just as much as it was at the time of its first giving. Now, we don't have the government actively pursuing us, trying to murder us or our families. That's true, though, in some parts of the world today. We need to pray for those brothers and sisters. But we do have difficulties. The Bible says all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So we need this book because it's going to give us some insight and show us how to live, what to think, and not to fret. And again, to show us that God is in control of history. But it doesn't mean we're we, we're not going to have to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to have to speak up for Christ. It Actually, it means expect to suffer and speak up. Give your testimony. This world, you don't owe this world anything except the gospel. Paul said, owe no man anything except to love one another. And if you love people, you want to tell them the word of life. Preach the gospel. That's what the commission is. So this book is given to the first century church, its original receivers, But the blessing is to all those who read it and all those who hear it. That means listen to it. And so the blessing belongs to us also. And this blessing we desperately need in our own day. We need to understand this book. May it please God to give us wisdom and understanding to read and to hear and to keep the things that are written in the words of this prophecy of the book of Revelation because God is in control. There is a fight. There is a battle. And there is a battle to be won. And the church, by God's grace, that's what this book is teaching us, will not be defeated. If you lived in the early church, if someone came up to you and you weren't too well versed in God's promises and said, do you think the church is going to survive? If you were just looking at everything, you would have said, I think you would have said, it's hard to say. Is the church going to survive in China? Is the church going to survive in North Korea, is the church going to survive in the United States? If you read the book of Revelation, you don't have to pause for a moment. The answer is, of course it will. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's referring to Peter's confession of him. Peter is a little stone, in spite of what the Romanists try to say. Peter's not the first pope, and he's not the rock upon which the church is built. Paul clearly identifies Christ as the rock. In scripture, the Lord is my rock upon this rock, and it's Petra, big, giant, massive stone. I will build my church. I, Jesus said, will build future my church. Okay, ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I love it when somebody pointed out, I don't know if it's Gary North or Dr. Ventil, um, someone once said, Dr. Rush Dooney, someone gates are defensive. When he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, you know we have this idea. Oh, the gate, the the devil's going to be beating the church over the head with the gates of hell. No, that means you're going to kick in the gates of hell, is what Jesus was saying. The church is called to victory. It's with a fight, and it will have martyrs, and ultimately there'll be the final victory when Christ returns. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, whether in its attacks. And it has no defense against the word of God, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So may God give us grace to lay hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ in personal faith, trust God's word, and realize the gospel is what changes people. The gospel is what changes families. It's what changes society. And by God's grace, it's what changes the church, because we're going to read about some churches that weren't quite everything they were supposed to be. And we may find ourselves identified in some of those descriptions and say, well, Lord, what do we do? Well, we go to God and trust him and ask him to change us. But we'll look at that in the future. But right now, just remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And praise God. I hope you get a chance to read through the whole book here soon, okay? because we're going to be studying through it. May God bless us and may the Holy Spirit teach us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your word. We do ask you to seal to our hearts the truth of the scriptures and keep us in your love and grace. For we ask this in Jesus Christ, blessed and holy name.